Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Is the recession really coming? Financial expert Ivan Elon sounds off. Plus, the Honorable Paul Johnson, former mayor of Phoenix, and psychologist Dr. Emily Bashad talk about young male violence in America, why it is exploding, and how to turn the tide. The Bruce Cook Conversation with your host, Bruce Cook. Trending now. Here's your host, Bruce Cook. Brought to you by the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue. Good Sunday night, everybody. It's Bruce Cook on KLAA tonight, AM 830, Angels Radio. As of June 30th, 2023, the two-year Treasury was at 4.71%, whereas the Standard & Poor's 500 CAEY was at 3.38%. You got that, everybody? Treasury... At 4.71, CAEY, S&P 500, 3.38. What does that mean? Okay, you're not a financial whiz. Neither am I. The CAEY stands for Cyclically Adjusted Earning Yield, 3.38%. You're not going to be tested on this. The last time we saw the two-year Treasury at least 100 base points higher than the cyclically adjusted earnings yield, or CAEY, was late 2007. For those of you old enough, 2007 was just before the great financial crisis that took us down in 2008 and 2009. What does that mean? Does that mean we are headed for a crisis? Does it mean we're headed for a recession? We're going to talk to our financial guru who comes on our show as a regular. His name is Ivan Elan. He is an expert in market, and his uh, role is founder and chief investment officer at Align Wealth Advisors Investment Management. That's all over the country, but it's headquartered in Southern California and Century City, but it's national. Ivan, welcome to the show. Hi, Bruce. I can barely hear you. Oh, really? Now I can really hear you. Oh, good. I good. just quoted you from an article that I just read that you wrote, and I want to educate our audience, our listening audience. We're not all genius investors, Ivan, but it scared me as I your as your your topic was very clear. Not knowing that much about Standard & Poor's 500 or the two-year Treasury, but that 100-point difference that existed in 2007, what does that mean to you as a financial expert right now? So, you know, one of the things uh, that we have when we're looking at uh, the capital markets, you know, and capital markets is just a fancy phrase that encompasses stocks and bonds, and even cash, um, or even U.S. Treasury bonds. And uh, so you you have to uh, figure out how to evaluate uh, whether something is a a good investment or not. That's kind of the the whole point of of the business and uh, why people get advanced uh, certifications and uh, people go to universities to study this this stuff and it's all in this attempt to figure out where you know is the best place to to put your money at different points in time because uh, markets do change economies do change uh, you know even a simple way to think about how much economies do change over time you know just uh, you know get in your time travel machine and go back 30 years and look at the top 10 stocks that occupy the S&P 500. Those companies are not in the top 10 anymore 30 years later. So market leadership changes. 
And, um, and so, of course, that doesn't happen overnight. It happens, you know, very slowly. And, uh, and so there are things, there are indicators that, that the markets basically, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it's like they show their hand. And if you're, play, if you're a poker player, you know, it's like you, you want to really keep those cards protected. But the market sometimes will, um, will show their cards. They'll kind of reveal something about uh, the, the underlying condition about, well, is this area really a good area to be investing in? Uh, because there are a lot of things you can put your money in. And so what you were citing uh, related to this article is if you can um, evaluate a bond and a stock on a level playing field, you know, because normally when you think about stocks, you think about a stock price. And when you think about bonds, you're thinking about a yield or a coupon rate. And those are not very easily compared with one another. It's like apples and oranges. And so you have to uh, break it down. You have to you know, create this um, equalizing uh, comparison so that you have apples and apples. And so when you look at the S&P 500 earnings yield, comparing it to the two-year U.S. Treasury yield, now at least you're looking at a yield to yield, so it's it's a more fair comparison to uh, to evaluate. All right, well, is investing in bonds uh, a more uh, you know lucrative investment? Is it going to provide you more return right now relative to stocks? And you you kind of shared the numbers there. Um, you know, the two-year Treasury is is essentially at five percent, uh, meaning. If you you know put money into the two-year U.S. Treasury and leave it there for the full two years and wait to get your money back at the end of the maturity period of two years, you'll basically earn five percent per year, and of course that compounds. Well, the earnings yield is a little bit more complicated, but just for simplification of what it is, it's basically the earnings per share of a company divided by its price. So earnings over price, and it essentially, and that's very important because stock prices are basically all they are is basically the present value of future earnings of a company. So, so the earnings yield actually tell you quite quite a bit, and there's a lot of writing about the earnings yield, and, and I referenced a couple of you know really fancy professors in this article that uh, you know really debate. Uh, whether it's a good time to be in stocks or not right now, based on the fact that this earnings yield figure is so much lower than the two-year treasury. And we don't really see that happen very often. And and, and so that's obviously given us all, um, you know, a little bit of pause for thought, in addition to all the other things that are going on in the markets that have people concerned. Now this particular metric is, is kind of flashing, uh, maybe not red, but certainly a uh, a very dark yellow. <laughs> Ivan, the article that you've written that I'm quoting from mentions those so-called, not so-called, but definitely actual experts, uh, both one from Wharton and one from Yale University, both of them economics professors. They are hedging bets. It sounds like you are hedging bets a little bit also. But I have to ask this question. In our conversations over the last six months on air here, We've been a little bit afraid of the fact that recession was looming. A lot of the pundits are softening on that, despite what you've just explained, despite about the facts that exist behind the explanation. What do you think is going on? Why are, why are other experts now pulling back a little bit? They were so sure that recession was coming, so positive that it was around the corner. But now they're not so sure because unemployment is under 4%. People are working. They're spending money. We've talked about that on the show many times. They're spending like there's no tomorrow. Where's the balance here? Yeah. What? Where? If somebody's listening to this show who's not an expert, as I am not, and you are, and they say, "I'd really like to diversify, but I don't want to give the give the market up. I'd still like to make some investment in stocks." What do you say? 
Yeah, I, I, I you know, it, it's uh, if you have a very long time horizon, investing in the S and P or some kind of index fund, it, that's a very basic way to do it. But you have to have a very long time horizon, meaning you know, a decade out that you don't plan on touching the money. And you that's pretty. A, that's pretty time. unrealistic, I think, yeah. in today's world. Even yeah, for agree. young people that have certainly more than ten years. You know, the stock market is filled with 20- and 30-year-olds that are gambling like crazy. they got a lifetime ahead of them, but they're buying and selling like tomorrow is the next day they move it. So one of the things that uh, we're seeing in the data is, because like you just mentioned, people have been spending. Spending really has just been very virulent, very, very strong, continued to be strong. The labor markets continue to be strong here in the U.S., but what we're finding is the excess savings that households have been holding on to since the pandemic. Essentially, that is, uh, that's basically projected to be done by September of this year. And, so, and that's been rapidly declining. Is and that it, because people have put money away over two years of pandemic because there wasn't an opportunity to spend it and now they're going crazy? Yes, simply put, that's exactly... And they're going to run out, and they're going to run out and face the music. Well, and not only are they running out of their cash reserves, this excess savings, but also if you look at credit cards, um, those are all, like, basically, you know, uh, an inflection point. I mean, those are rapidly rising balances right now. Let's talk about that. Let me interrupt you. Credit card balances are going up, and the interest rates are astronomical. Are people that dumb? Uh, apparently, or are <laughs> apparently they, they are, I or mean, are they it, that happy in their life that they well, don't you know care? What it is? It, it, it's actually quite, um, uh, it, it's all about this cumulative inflation that we have seen over the past three years. And, and I think most of your listeners understand that inflation has been very bad, very, I mean, really punitive and very punishing. But actually, when you step back and you look at the full impact of the past three years of inflation, it's close to 19% cumulative inflation over the past three years. And so we hear all this stuff about, oh, inflation is slowing down. Oh, it's only 4% year over year now. Well, actually, it's still very painful because it's 4% on top of this, this massive increase in price levels that we've seen over the three years. So not only have people been eating into their savings and, and kind of revenge spending uh, with dining out or travel, all the things they couldn't do for that two-year period of time, well, it, it's actually all gotten so much more expensive that they're going into credit card debt to even finance this, uh, just to you know to pay for basic living expenses. I realize you're not a psychologist, but can you tell me why? Why are the airlines going crazy why is travel going crazy? Why are people going out to lunch and dinner in restaurants where the prices have literally doubled and tripled, and they're doing it regularly? Yeah, I mean, it's a confidence issue. People are very confident. Uh, you know, these studies time and time again show that, you know, if uh, a household had a uh, you know, $400 expense that they needed to meet, something like 60% of households in this country couldn't easily meet that expense with cash on hand. They would have to go into debt for that. So, so it is very much um, a, psycho, a psychological, uh, essentially, damage that, that occurred during that period of isolation and restriction. And, uh, and so now there's this, uh, you know, it's, it, it's really de- delusional, <laughs> at a macroeconomic level of uh, how people are approaching their finances right now. Uh, and, and so it is certainly something to be uh, concerned about. I've noticed personally, just in recent weeks, not long months ago, but just in recent weeks, that places that were suffering from lack of employees for two and a half years, restaurants, hotels, uh, shopping centers, in other words, the rank-and-file society, these people are now back. Maybe it's not the same people, but people are back to work. Um, I was in a restaurant recently that 
you know, a few months ago, you had to scream across the room to get the attention of, of help. There was five people su- surrounding the table. This is new. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, people have been uh, coming back into certain se- uh, service sectors in the economy. We've been seeing that in the payrolls data uh, that gets published every month. And, uh, and you're exactly right. I mean, the services, uh, the hospitality industry, restaurants, hotels, that, that's actually been a, a key area of rehiring and that people have come in. Uh, what's, what's a little disappointing is other than that particular sector, the other sector that actually ranks very, very highly, number two actually, is government. So you actually have um, a lot of government hiring happening right now as well. I don't know if that's the uh, 80,000 IRS agents that uh, are, are supposed to be on deck to, to show up, but essentially... I uh, thought that was kiboshed. Well, uh, I don't know. I, 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 think, I, I think there's still some... Uh, the funding has... They still have money uh, to expand uh, that, that, that employment base at the IRS. There's still a pretty fair amount of allocation there. Probably won't get the eighty thousand, but they're still going to get a you know a, a pretty big bump. I want to know if it even if it is approved, where are you going to find eighty thousand qualified accountants to go to work for the IRS? Oh well, they won't be qualified accountants. They'll they'll basically have a form, and you know they'll be trained on on how to look for uh, you know certain things on tax returns, and uh, and of course you know there'll be an algorithm that gets run to just put this. Uh, pipeline in front of somebody who essentially is an administrator. It sounds like paper. it sounds like chaos in the making. Maybe, maybe Bruce. Chaos in the making. Listen, we have to take our first break, Ivan. Ladies and gentlemen, we're with Ivan Elan tonight, uh, founder of Align Wealth Management and Investment. And I'm Bruce Cook, of course. And we will be right back. You better not go away. We're going to try and heal your woes in the next fifteen minutes. At the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, the Hogue Epilepsy Program is accredited by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers as a Level 4 Epilepsy Center. This means that our experts provide the highest level care for patients with complex epilepsy. Our patient-centered approach to epilepsy treatment combined with state-of-the-art technology, including robotics and laser ablation, ensure the best possible outcomes for our patients. To learn more or for an evaluation, call 949-966-0243 or visit hogue.org forward slash epilepsy care. We're back, everybody. I'm Bruce Cook. It's the conversation tonight on radio, live Sunday night on Angels Radio, KLAA, AM 830. We're talking the economy with our expert, very special guest, Ivan Elan, founder of Align Wealth Management, Century City, and all over the nation. Listen, Ivan, interest rates, interest rates. The Fed is saying two more... Uh, two more times possibly this year. Right now, if you want to go out and buy a car, you're probably, depending on the offer and the make, but you could be paying, depending on who you are and what your credit is and what your down payment is, a lot of money for that car loan. If you're buying a used car, you better be looking at 7 8 9 10%, and they're going to raise it again. What does this mean? Right. Uh, I, I think it is a very challenging period for consumers uh, that we have ahead of us because, uh, you know, obviously you look at 30-year mortgages, um, you know, they're, they're in the 7% range, and obviously that will make housing less affordable. I mean, it's very, this isn't rocket science. It, it's a more expensive payment. You're spending much more money on interest. The ultimate amount you spend on that home is significantly increased. Um, I think I read a statistic that it was, it's, it's, it's something like 70% of home mortgages in this country are below a 3.5% fixed rate for 30 years. 
Which so, means nobody's moving. Nobody's moving. Yeah. Nobody is going to sell their home. Nothing's so, going to move. So you've got, so, so it's a very interesting supply issue, and you actually start to see this already show up in new constructions. So existing home sales have absolutely plummeted, but uh, new construction sales are doing okay. They're holding in there. Well, why is that? It's because the developers have basically put themselves in the position of being the bank, and they are discounting or buying down points on these 30-year fixed rates. Well, that's all good and, good and wonderful if you want to live far away from most metropolitan right. areas where there is no room to build anything anymore. Right. Right. And most people are in big trouble. There was a front-page article uh, yesterday, Los Angeles Times. The headline referred to hotel workers that were recently on strike, as everybody knows, uh, in Los Angeles and also par partially in Orange County. Hotel, hotel workers driving for hours to get from their homes in order to come to work in the city. Driving for hours. That is non-sustainable, but they're doing it because they can't afford to live where they work, and they, they would like to own a home, and they can afford a home far away. But how can that be sustainable, Ivan? Right. Society will pay the price, and how close are we to paying that price? Well, you know, I have, I've had this theory for a number of years, which is there was an opportunity to really uh, clean up the economy, or, or what I should say, to uh, levelize the economy more appropriately uh, during the great financial crisis. So that was, a, that was a huge event in U.S. economic history. And essentially, the, the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Treasury, you know, the government, intervened in a very big way, uh, basically cleaning up of, of the, a lot of the bad decision-making of banks. And, and by the way, you've kind of seen this, a, a little window of this again with Silicon Valley Bank. Yes, we have, and it seems to have disappeared from the front pages. What's going on with that? No, it's still there's still very much a pressure that banks have with regard to uh, the kinds of bonds they bought, and and so this, so they their uh, reserves are down in value. They are vulnerable. Uh, obviously, the very big banks have much less vulnerability, but there's. I read something like 138 banks that still have some uh, of this expo have this exposure. They have this issue of of having uh, their reserves really uh, down quite a bit. When Silicon Valley Bank went, and then First Republic and others went, there was a rush of people that left smaller institutions they had trusted for decades and went to B of A. Yes. Against and, their better judgment, by the way. They went to B of A because they felt if if they all go, B of A, if that goes, we're all done. Right. And now, actually, and you continue that story, you've seen something else happen, which is very uh, challenging uh, because money has actually left the banking system altogether and has gone into money market funds. And money market funds are, you know, regarded as a very plain, simple, you know, boring-type investment. But it is an investment. It is usually in a mutual fund format, um, usually attached to, you know, your 401k or some simple investment account. And, uh, and money market funds are paying very uh, decent rates, you know, uh, typically north of 4%, 4.5% right now, whereas the bank in your basic savings account or checking account is maybe paying you half a percent. Explain uh, the difference to people that aren't so sophisticated between a money market fund and just a savings account in a bank. Right. So, so a bank savings account means that your deposit is part of the FDIC uh, money base. Yeah, it is, it is uh, money that lives within the fractional banking system. And our entire economy, actually the entire global economy, works off of a fractional banking system, which means when you put $100 into the bank, that $100 becomes $1,000 in the economy because the bank uh, will, will loan out 
money uh, from, but that that ten percent reserves is basically what the government says. Well, you got to keep some money on reserves, and now you can loan out money in the economy so businesses and you know, consumers can buy things. And so, so it is very much the foundation of our of our global economic system, which essentially is a highly levered, a high debt. Um, lots of liability that's embedded in our banking system globally. Uh, it, it, and so it, it always is a little precarious. So then you see things like this happen with SVB. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, you know, it, uh, you take notice and you say, ah, okay, so these guys made some very bad decisions on how to invest their reserves, and now the government's showing up and bailing them out. Well, this is this smells very similar to what the government did many years ago with the banks back then, when afterwards they said, oh, you're too big to fail, we won't let this happen again. But those banks made bad decisions. They made bad loans to people that really couldn't afford to take on that debt. And so here the government is bailing out companies that uh, essentially a lot of, um, you know, venture capital money and, uh, and, and, and you're rewarding essentially bad decision making by not allowing that money to be eviscerated, you know, to just be lost. You Instead, have, the government bails them out. You you got off my question. Oh. The difference between just putting your hundred dollars in a oh, savings right. account and then so that's, what that's is that's a, what's the, the difference between a right. money market fund? So that's the fractional banking system. The money market is the mutual fund company just takes that money on deposit and goes and buys uh, bonds, uh, usually U.S. Treasury bonds, in the marketplace, and those, of course, are yielding quite a bit right now. So, so what's the security? What's the security difference between the risk of just putting your money in a bank account and putting your money in a money market? Well, a money market is actually real investments. It's dollar for dollar transactions. So you put money in the money market. That money market fund is going to go and buy uh, essentially bonds, uh, real investments that back that that investment. Now, of course, you have a risk there, even though it's a dollar in, dollar out, and everybody hopes that it maintains that. Actually, during the financial crisis in 2008-2009, we saw a couple of money market funds actually go lower than $1 in value. So there is a little bit of risk there that people should be aware of. It is not a guarantee the way FDIC is. Uh, and so that's the big difference. That's, but, but the, it, that's yeah. the answer I think people need to understand. Yeah. Ivan, we're out of time, but I need you to come back because I want to talk about this new political economic word that is being bantered around called Bidenomics. And what does that mean to the American public? What does that mean to the election that's coming? And is it real? Is it just politics? What does it have to do with the economy and everyday people? So will you come back soon so we can examine Bidenomics? Always a pleasure, Bruce. Anyway, uh, before you go, please share with our listening audience how to reach you if they're interested in getting some investment advice. Sure. We have a lot of resources on our website at alignwealth.com. That's A-L-I-G-N-E wealth.com. And if you go there, uh, we have some contact forms and uh, always happy to uh, continue this conversation because there's a lot of things that I think people would be uh, fascinated to learn. And they are every time you come on. Thank you for your time and your expertise. Have a great week, Ivan, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Bruce. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Ivan Aland from Align Wealth Management. I'm Bruce Cook tonight, live on radio. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're changing gears big time. We have some real serious stuff to talk about. The topic coming up is why do young men seem to be so violent in our society right now? Why are there so many young men in such trouble? And what is driving them to shooting others? I will be right back. Pick up 
Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue is ranked in the top 1% in the nation by U.S. News & World Report. It provides world-class care through multidisciplinary expert teams, each focusing on specific disorders of the brain and spine, such as stroke, aneurysms, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, cognitive disorders including Alzheimer's, epilepsy, back pain, as well as spinal cord issues, addiction medicine, and sleep disorders. Our renowned experts offer the best evidence-based care, state-of-the-art technology, and the latest clinical research, all focused on the individual patient. Our stroke program was the first in Orange County named as a certified comprehensive stroke center, and our brain tumor program is the largest in Orange County and among the top volume programs in the Western United States. Hiccup Family Neurosciences Institute, compassionate care, clinical excellence, creative intelligence. To learn more, call 949-516-9075 or visit hogue.org forward slash neuroinstitute. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Bruce Cook. Sunday Night Live on Radio Tonight. Angels Radio, AM 830, KLAA, Los Angeles, Orange County. A huge 50-watt station that takes us to Ventura, down to Mexico. Everyone in Southern California listening tonight. Okay. If you were with me the first half hour of our time together, we talked very much seriously about our economy, about your money and mine, and what's happening, whether we should be afraid of recession or not, what we should do if we have some investment dollars to make, how we should watch our spending as interest rates rise. Our serious topics tonight switch gears dramatically as we spend time in the next half hour with two very, very professional and very expert speakers that are going to join me tonight on radio. I have had the pleasure of having them both on uh, several times before. I will welcome them in a second, but let me introduce the topic. And I will quote from a couple newspaper sources to, to get us going. This is a headline from the Washington Post listeners. Young men, guns, and the prefrontal cortex. The subhead reads as follows. Reads as follows. When Vanderbilt University psychiatrist Jonathan Metzel learned that the, perp the perpetrator of the Uvalde, Texas school massacre was a young man barely out of his adolescence, it was hard not to think about the peculiarities of the maturing male brain. Switch to the Los I'm sorry, to the New York Times, ladies and gentlemen, and this is from a another article entitled, A Disturbing New Pattern in Mass Shootings, Young Adolescents. Let me quote part of that article also. Two young men accused of carrying out the massacres in Buffalo and Uvalde followed a similar path. They both brought semiotic rifles right after turning 18 years of age, posted images intended to display their strength and menace, and then turned those weapons on innocent people. Joining me tonight, Paul Johnson, former mayor of Phoenix, Arizona, podcaster, the Optimistic American Podcast, joining his partner, Dr. Emily Bashaw. The two have written a book, Addictive Technologies, Finding Meaning and Agency When Politics Fail You. Emily, Paul, are you with me? We are. Yes, we're here, Bruce. Thanks so much for having us on your show again. We appreciate it. Well, I love having you on the show because you're both so smart. You've got great ideas, and we need them badly. You've heard the introduction. Our topic tonight, Emily and Paul, how do we countermand this mental problem in young men? From what I have read, and I'm not going to quote statistics because they're just numbers, the majority of these violent perpetrator, perpetrators, excuse me, young men are Caucasian. Next, black. After that, Hispanic, and then in a very minority, Asian and other. What's going on? Paul, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and start, Bruce. Um, and, and I'm going to start from 
uh, my perspective in being mayor. You know, in the 1990s, one of the things that we should recognize is that actually the overall crime rate, according to uh, the U.S. Department of Justice in a paper they put out called Juvenile Justice, crime rate amongst young people is actually going down. Now, I, I'm only pointing that out because they're saying that it's going down from 1994. 1992, while I was mayor, the, the crime rate in Phoenix was definitely surging, and it was definitely surging amongst young men uh, in our community. Now, during that period of time, I ended up having a, a woman who, whose son was valedictorian of his school. He was just standing on the wrong corner at the wrong time, and kids drove by one another, shooting at one another, and they ended up uh, killing this uh, young boy who had been valedictorian. So I went to the funeral. I didn't know the mom, but when I went up to give her my condolences, she just kind of blurted out. She said, you know, Mayor, there had to be something you could have done that would have stopped my son from getting killed, and you didn't do it. Now, for a while, I, uh, you know, I, I thought it wasn't fair. I didn't think that, you know, I was nice to her, obviously, but I, I thought that her comments didn't recognize things that we were trying to do. But when I was done thinking about it, I recognized that she was probably right. So I called her back and I said, look, I'm willing to work on this, but I, I need your help. I need your help in being able to try to make a difference. And we began working on putting into place a whole series of programs that summer. We put into place a kid's gun law, a curfew program. Uh, we put into place a, um, a school uniform program. Now, it's hard to know which one of those items made a big difference, but here's what we do know. We saw about a 74% reduction in juvenile crime over the next two summers. The right answer for this is to do everything you can, right? I, by the way, I ended up being sued by the ACLU for the curfew program and the kid's gun law. I was sued by the NRA. I was sued by both sides who didn't like the solutions that we had come up with. Well, if you look at the studies that we are seeing today, there was a, a, there's a really good study by the Justice Department that points out the kids who have been engaged in, uh, in mass violence, especially those on campuses. But one of the things that they pointed out that was fascinating to me, they did a study of about 180 cases, as you said a moment ago. The majority of them were white. The majority of them went to the school that they were actually located in. The majority of them actually gained guns uh, from inside their uh, from inside their own home and then brought them to school. When you start looking at what works on that, here's the first thing. You actually can begin to profile them. One of the things that they also saw, which Emily I know can talk about, is that almost all of them uh, were people who had attempted suicide in their past, meaning when they were committing those crimes, they knew that they were going, they, they weren't going to walk away from it, that it was going to be their last time there. Well, again, you can begin to identify kids in that process. But the things that work are things like safe storage laws. There's lots of evidence. That safe, safe storage laws are one of the most important things that you can do. Uh, the idea of us being able to get injunctions on people that we know that are uh, dangerous, to get restraining orders on them. We know that those work. We know uh, that it also works to have red flag laws. But in addition to that, you know, in my opinion, as communities turn away from curfews, we end up having a bigger set of problems. Look, young people, we can go into white males, and Emily's done a lot of work on this. She can talk specifically about what's happening amongst young white males, and there's no doubt that's where Young males is where the majority of the problem exists. But it's, it's between the age of about 16 and 24 years old, and this is really the biggest difficult problem. We have to, you almost have to over-regulate, uh, over, uh, over-compensate um, over to make certain that your kids don't get in trouble during that period of time. And it's a lot of work. I've Paul, raised, there, Paul, there is so much, I mean, you're making... Great sense, but there is so much resistance to the quote-unquote over-regulating anything. You have people divided on every issue about regulations that are either restrictive, unfair, socialistic, leaning. Uh, you know, you come up with any kind of reason why people don't want to regulate anything and it's laissez-faire time. How does government handle that? But I don't want you to answer that question right now. I want Emily to jump in because... What you've basically brought up is that in this day and age, in this time, in the last decade, 
this suicide factor, this mental illness factor in young men, particularly white young men, has turned into this excessive violence. And we're not going to talk about availability of the guns. You've, you've addressed that to a degree. I want to talk about the mental health issue because this is not something new. There were young men in every generation of this period that had these mental problems, but they weren't all suicidal and ready to kill the world before they took their own life. What has changed, Emily Bashad? Dr. Bashad, talk to me. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. I, this is such an important topic, and uh, I, I really value the time that you're taking to um, extend this to community and inform uh, people who are listening right now. I think the biggest thing that people can do to affect change in their lives today is looking at parenting of children. So there are a lot of longitudinal studies that reveal that the most aggressive age across the lifespan are actually male children at age two, which sounds kind of preposterous if you think about it, but the variables that they studied were hitting, pushing, fighting, um, and lacking a social reciprocity and property theft. And between the ages of two and four is what is considered to be such a crucial, critical developmental age for parents to model and teach pro-social behaviors, delayed gratification, and emotion regulation for the purpose of socialization. So if a child cannot socially adapt, they're going to have all those risk factors that go into the studies that Paul was mentioning before. Um, they're ostracized by others. They don't learn to socialize and become socially and emotionally stunted developmentally. And that does have long-term impacts on their brain development that we see with neurological studies. Then they become confronted with failure because they're not fitting in with their peers. No one likes them. They're getting further ostracized and pushed out of their peer group. And that impacts their psychology. While it's a minority of children, we're not talking about all children here, and certainly there's a lot of other variables to consider, but parents ultimately teach children to become socially desirable. That's probably one of the most important factors to consider here uh, because they're learning social emotional reciprocity. Through this mechanism, adults and peers are drawn to the child and the child gains all the benefits from varied social inputs. So that those are norms, that's moral, morality, moral development, and values. This is fascinating stuff. I don't know that people understand how important it is at the age of two years old. I think most young people, young parents with two to four-year-old young male children, probably don't have this depth of understanding, and they see their kid acting out, and they just say, that's normal stuff. It's a boy. That's boy stuff. It, it, even in this world of so-called more gender equality, et cetera. It's, they look at it, it's boy stuff. He's just acting out. It'll all, you know, he'll grow up. Yeah, and if you consider boys and the, um, the impacts of testosterone on their physiological development, the puberty usually starts around the early teens, could be anywhere from like 16 to 25 is really when the impacts of testosterone um, are probably at the most prevalent and it's impacting aggressive behavior. So, we're seeing violence with correlates of aggression, but during those ages, 16 to 25, male youth, they're going to be stimulus-seeking. They're going to be engaging in risk-taking behaviors. We see a rise in substance use during this time. The frontal lobe is not fully developed, so they don't have that impulse control or that ability to have that forethought and appreciate consequences of their behaviors and their choices. And if they don't have a healthy outlet, like through sports or um, other activities that can manifest into these externalized behaviors or violence, if they haven't learned these skill sets during that critical period of time, it can have a very different impact on the human being and trend them more towards these conduct problems that we see in adolescence or even childhood, oppositional defiant behaviors, and that can later develop into antisocial personality disorder. It just gets so worse providers. and worse. Yeah, it'll just continue down that trajectory. So, psychiatrists, psychologists, providers, you know, may attempt to self, may attempt to medicate children by um, basically diagnosing them with ADHD, seeing that they're hyperactive, they're very difficult to control, and they want to sedate them with medications on stimulants. And you know, there's a whole set of controversy around. That's, that's a whole other show. 
Emily. We're Correct. Gonna, we're not even going to go there I, in our time tonight. Right. But what I want to say is, you know, fathers who engage in rough and tumble play with their sons, there's so much value that happens during that contact time. Um, because they're expressing their aggression in healthy ways. It keeps them pro-social. It has the father's engagement in their child's development. And what is the moral responsibility and obligation of a parent? It's to raise pro-social and socially emotionally adaptive children, to raise children to be great socializers and to be socially desirable. That's going to help them in life. On that, I have to stop you. We have to take a break. It's a great point to stop, and we're going to come right back. Emily and Paul, stay with me. We have so much more to talk about, not a lot of time. Uh, But ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook tonight with Paul Johnson and Emily Bashaw. We're talking about violence in our youth, especially our male youth, and if there's anything we can do to turn it around. We'll be right back. Do not go away. As part of the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, Hoag's Neurospine program offers innovative methods to reduce pain, inflammation, and improve mobility safely and effectively, often without surgery. Should you need surgery, Hoag is a leader with minimally invasive techniques, 3D imaging, and robotics to restore your golf swing or your swing dance. Many of our patients go home in just a few hours, walking the very next day. Call our dedicated nurse navigator at 949-537-2931 for an evaluation or visit hoag.org forward slash Welcome back, everyone. I'm Bruce Cook tonight, live on Angels Radio. I'm visiting with two very special guests, the Honorable Paul Johnson and Dr. Emily Bashaw. Just before the break, Emily shared with us that parents are responsible for raising healthy, well-adjusted kids. And I'm sure she would agree when I say that we are failing as parents to raise those healthy, well-adjusted kids in so many instances. I don't know if it's worse than it's ever been. I don't know if it's getting better, but we are failing. So I want to ask Paul to jump in here and respond when I say, how does the public sector of government, which you are so familiar with, pick it up where the parents fail and how getting back to how we started our conversation tonight with all the programs that you that you described that you put into place in Phoenix Arizona to help curb this kind of violence in young male youth how do we get beyond all the noise and all of the criticism and all the debate that gets in the way of solving the problem Paul help me sure so so let me start with this you only have to have about 5% of the parents fail on teaching their children how to socialize and work with other children for it to be a big problem for a community. Good it's point. A, it's Good a point. Large amount of kids. But there are a lot of parents who are doing the right thing. But a small amount of parents, a small percentage, can be a huge problem on our streets. And the job that cities have uh, end up being, government ends up having, is trying to fix the problem when that small group of families fail for whatever reason that they fail. I would tell you that what I learned in being a mayor is a couple of things. The first one is the idea that you're going to defund the police. I I promise you, if you went out to the harder areas of your community and you said, hey, the wealthy communities want more cops, and we're hearing from your neighborhood you want less cops, we're going to take the less cops away from your neighborhood and send them to the wealthy ones, and we'll just defund them in your area. You'd have a riot, all right? I I guarantee it, because I had areas in Phoenix that were tough areas. But what happens is the people who are being harmed by the crime oftentimes aren't the ones that are the loudest. They're not the ones that are speaking up. You start removing cops, and those people will speak up. The second thing that I would tell you is if you start cutting out pool hours or midnight basketball, you can't hire enough cops. Right? You have to find activities for these young people to stay engaged with. It, it just is an important part of the process. And then you have to get rid of this left-right critique and be willing to take on both sides to try to make a difference. So I'll give you just one example, the curfew program. You know, on the curfew program, we had a lot of people who their belief was that you couldn't fix this by simply curtailing, uh, making certain that kids ended up having to be picked up uh, that were out past midnight or 1 o'clock. We ended up being sued, in fact, by the ACLU for a young white teenager who was a cheerleader straight-A student. She was, uh, she had 
you know, been doing everything right, but she was out at 1.30 in the morning out in a park with a group of other kids. She got picked up. And when she was picked up, I remember my police department said, you know, Mayor, we should probably back off of this, or you should, and, and we'll handle it. My answer was no. I held a press conference, and I said, hey, look, she was out at 1.30 in the morning. But it's our job to make certain that they're not. And, and we're not doing this just to punish bad kids. We're doing this to protect good kids. So one of the reporters said, well, Mayor, this is a good kid. She was doing all the right things. Her parents thought that it was okay for her to be out. How can you think that you have the right to say that? My first answer to that was, I don't want my police department determining which kids are good kids and which kids are bad kids. I want them to use a timeline. And if it's earlier than that, pick them up. Number two, good kids die when they're hit by stray bullets, just like bad kids do. Right. So it's part of leadership's job to be in their space. Because there are these extremes on both sides that, that want no rules or no regulation, even for children. I, I, I couldn't believe the NRA sued me for the kids' gun law Paul, because we were trying to take guns out of the hands of kids under the age of 18. Paul, I've got to bring yes, it to a close because we're running out of time. Uh, give us your website or your, or your phone contact so anybody can get you if they need to. Sure. They can uh, go to... Uh, optamerican.com. You can also see our book there, Addictive Ideologies. And uh, Emily and I kind of like working on these problems because she deals with it from the psychological standpoint. I deal with it more from the sociological standpoint. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you both tonight. I want you to come back again often. All the best to both of you. Thank you so much for your input. Ladies and gentlemen, the show is ending. Our time is up. I wish you a very healthy and happy and successful week. Come back again next Sunday night to the Bruce Cook Show, the conversation on KLAA AM 830 radio. Next week we're on at 2 o'clock before the game, so a slight, uh, slight time difference. Anyway, good night, Emily. Good night, Paul. Thank you, everybody. See you next week. You've been listening to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear the Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM 830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. <laughs>